It's good. You know, this message today is um, a bit of a part two to last week's sermon in that <clears throat> the protagonists in our story started out on a journey to Rome from Caesarea. If you'll remember, if you were here and before they make it to their, their intended destination, they find themselves shipwrecked on an island out in the Mediterranean Sea. And so their journey isn't over yet. It's rather suspended, if you will, for a period of time on an island called Malta, which although was a part of the main seafaring route from Myra to Rome, the manner in which Paul and friends, uh, his friends arrived there was by no means a part of their original plan. And we're going to come back to that point in a few minutes, but as we open up our story today, we find Paul and his friends and the others who were on the boat stuck on this somewhat remote and seemingly insignificant place, at least as far as the big picture of Paul's travels and purpose in life were concerned. However, it was anything but insignificant, turns out, as we'll see. Because as the story progresses, even as their journey does not for a period of time, God still has great purpose for Paul and his companions right where they are, uh, even as their lives seem to be on pause, okay? Their progress is stopped at least as far as they could tell, because their purpose, the master plan, the road that God had them on had been interrupted by a great storm causing them to get stuck in probably the last place that anyone would ever associate with progress, right? This island out somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea. And yet as we continue the story today, we'll see that even in the remoteness of being stranded on an island, when it seems like their lives and their purpose and their progress had been put on hold, the reality couldn't have been any further from that. And through what it seems to be totally random and show-stopping part of the journey, God reveals, uh, God reveals great purpose. And by the way, He does the very same thing in our lives today. Because nothing about God is random. All right? Nothing is insignificant. And unlike us, he sees the entire picture. And he has a command of the entire story of our lives in a way that we cannot. All right? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. It reminds me of my family. And the stage in life where each member of my family exists. For instance, my seven-year-old daughter can only see what's happening in front of her right now. Like in the moment. Or maybe at times what is immediately coming up if that event is significant enough on her radar. So she lives very much in the moment. And if she thinks about anything else, it's the next birthday party, right? Or the next date with dad. Or the next movie that we're going to watch when the weekend comes or whatever. And then you get to my teenage boys, and I notice that they think a bit further out. They think about the future. Uh, they think about their plans for college, and they think about relationships and, and the days ahead in general. But there still isn't necessarily a lot of reflection on the big picture of life at this stage in their journey. And then you get to me and my wife, and particularly... As we begin to pass through middle age, we find ourselves more and more not only thinking about the immediate and not only about future plans, but we think about and talk about overall uh, life, the bigger picture, much more than we used to. And so uh, there are conversations about what life is about, 
what our lives are about and what the whole picture looks like when you put all the years together and all of the experiences and all of the events, both major and minor, all of the relationships and so on. And, and at some point, you really begin to think about and assess what it's all about and what it will look like when it's over. What will we have achieved? Uh, maybe that is of lasting value. And so questions like, what is my purpose? Why am I here? That a lot of young people like to ponder in their college years. Those depth of questions can move from mostly philosophical, I think when you're young, to very weighty as we grow older. Because as a rule, we understand ourselves better as we age. And, and we typically gain a perspective through the years that generally comes with time and experience. And so I think that the wisest way to form a perspective on life is to approach it on the whole as much as we can, as much as possible, rather than looking at it in fragments, which is what we tend to do, right? Rather than thinking uh, Monday is the back to work, grind my way through it day, right? And then Wednesday is I'm halfway there, hump day. And then Friday is thank you, Jesus, the weekend is finally here day. And then Sunday's time to give something back to God day. And then repeat the spin cycle, right? Instead, what if we view it all just holistically, which is what the Hebrew people used to do. They still do in many parts of their culture and society. Every bit of it belongs to God. Every bit of it is for God. Every bit of it is ordained by God, even the hard parts. And then engage in life from that perspective, knowing that ultimately he sees the whole picture where we cannot. And so trusting in him, just as my kids have to trust in me that I'm making decisions on their behalf that are best for them, even when some of those decisions may make them uncomfortable, right, or even unhappy for a period of time, I'm still doing what is ultimately the best for them because I have a perspective on life in general and their lives specifically that they don't have, all right? When, when my boys were little, before Avery was born, we would all sit around the dining room table together and eat dinner and there's always a vegetable. There's always something green on the plate because that's healthy. And a couple of times a week that happens to be green beans. And we found out early on that Coleman hated green beans. Matter of fact, I think he still hates green beans, but, but Coleman always hated green beans. And so a couple times a week, We'd have green beans and we would all finish eating dinner and everything, the plates would be clean and there'd be a pile of green beans on Coleman's plate. And Coleman didn't want to eat them. And so we, there was this routine. We'd say, okay, we're going to get them clean up the table and you're permitted to leave the table when the green beans are gone. And we would all get up and leave the room and we would be gone. And some point later, Coleman would come walking out with a clean plate. And we would go on about our evening. And this went on like this for months, probably more than a year. And then one day I was looking for something that I had misplaced. And I went into the dining room and the kids were in there. And we had this table and on the end of both, uh, both ends of the table, there were these drawers that slid out. You can see where this is going, right? And I don't know what the drawers are even there for. I guess to keep silverware or something. But we didn't use them. At least Coleman used them, but we didn't use them. <laughs> and so I'm looking. And for some reason, I opened one of those drawers. And I'm telling you, I don't know if you've ever seen a dried green bean. But they, they shrivel up pencil thin and, and kind of crispy. And they're packed into this drawer. 
Like, I mean, there's thousands of them packed into there. I opened up and they're just packed to the brim with dried green beans. It's like a science experiment. And I said, what is going on? And I look over at Riley and Riley looks at Coleman and goes like this. Okay. We knew what was best for Coleman, right? It was green beans, but Coleman didn't see it that way. Likewise, sometimes God fixes us a big old plate of spiritual green beans for us in the form of hardship. And because we can't see the big picture like he does, our natural reaction may be to try and avoid hardship at all costs or to shrink back from that when actually he wants us to engage. (coughs) Even though it isn't always pleasant, eat the green beans. Because in the end, they will make you, what, healthier and stronger. It's what's best for us. And when we think about our lives, we should try to look at the whole picture, I think, or at least as much of it as we can rather than just the fragment that happens to be right in front of us at any given moment. And so just as the video mentioned, we don't simply come to church on Sundays to glorify God. We live our entire lives to glorify God. That should, that should transcend Sundays. That should be in everything that we do uh, when we're eating, as he said, when we're with friends, everything. Work, our play, our hobbies, our relationships, the, our good times, our hard times. It's all sacred. And it all belongs to Him. And when we view life that way, it can really begin to affect your behavior and your outlook on every aspect of your life. And in the end, it will help to clarify for you what your true purpose is. Because when you start seeing your life as one giant act of service to God and others, even the parts where it seems your purpose and your progress have been halted, as you view even those parts as an intentional piece to his great plan for your life, your role and your purpose will become much clearer as you go along. And this is really important because there are times in life when circumstances that we cannot predict halt our progress, don't they? And it can be difficult to see the purpose in that. It can seem counterproductive to our calling and to the journey that we know God has called us to. But when we begin to look for God in everything, even when life throws us a, a curveball and all of a sudden we feel stuck, when we, when we look for God and His purpose, and that's a key here, even in those uh, stranded on an island times in our lives when life seems to be on pause, we will discover a greater purpose that was a part of God's plan for us from the beginning. And this is what we're going to witness today with Paul and his friends, particularly Luke, who is telling the story as we continue our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, with a sermon entitled, Finding Purpose When You Feel Stranded. So let's turn to the book of Acts. We're going to work our way through just the first 10 verses of chapter 28. And as usual, uh, we're picking up the story where we left off the week before. As Paul and Luke The other 274 passengers and crew on their ship have all made it safely now onto this island after a a horrific storm-tossed more than two weeks on open seas, okay? So pick up the story at chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Okay, this was in November, uh, which is typically a cold month for Malta. And given the fact that they've all just uh, swam or floated on boards 
from the shipwreck to the shore, and now it's raining. Uh, so you know they're soaked to the bone, obviously cold. So the Maltese natives get a fire going uh, so these shipwrecked visitors can dry out and warm up. Verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. I don't know why that's funny, but it is to me. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. You know, roughly 2,000 years later, this almost seems comical for some reason, but I'm sure at the time it was anything but. Paul's just been through two weeks of pure hell, right, on an out-of-control, storm-battered ship, tossed on violent seas, nearly killed not only by the storm, but also by Roman soldiers. Uh, as well, the crew tried to abandon him and the others at one point, but the boat gets completely destroyed as they near land. So they jump in the water and they swim through incredibly difficult seas. Don't forget what was happening in the ocean while they're trying to swim to shore. And after all of that, after surviving everything that's been thrown at them, they make it to land and Paul gets bitten by a deadly snake. Honestly, I used to wonder, was he just standing there as this thing is latched onto his hand thinking, really? <laughs> after everything I've been through, I'm going to die from a snake bite? In reality, though, I think probably at this point, uh, Paul was probably so secure in the faith that God was going to see him safely delivered to Rome as promised that he, he most likely didn't think much about it at all as he, he shakes the thing off of his hand into the fire. But really, it's hard not to wonder if Paul ever had thoughts like, you know, what else could possibly happen? The guy's life was one breathtaking event after another. And just about the time you finally make it to this island, maybe he's thinking a little respite, you know, after all the turmoil in his life, maybe a chance for a little R&R &R on this Mediterranean island. He finally gets there, starts raining, and gets bit by a snake. But he doesn't seem to miss a beat. And the islanders, uh, justifiably, are amazed. Right? I can almost picture them all standing around Paul, staring at him while he's sitting there by the fire waiting for him to die. But he suffers no ill effect. And so the natives decide he must be a god. And we'll come back to that in a moment as well. But I want to draw your attention to something else here. Because in this part of the story, the snake bite gets all the billing. Right? Everybody wants to talk about the snake bite. And I understand that because it was a supernatural event. But I would contend that there's something here even more amazing or at least as amazing, uh, that happens in this part of the story. To me, uh, the far more shocking part uh, in these verses is the first part of verse 3, which says, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. Doesn't sound too amazing, but just a reminder, lest we forget. Paul is the reason that all of these men, 276 of them, including him, are alive. I mean, obviously, God is ultimately the reason they survived, and we know that, but he uses Paul to be his instrument, uh, which is why these men are saved, and not only once, but multiple times throughout the entire journey. And if that's not enough, even before that, he rallies the men on the ship when they'd lost all hope. He, he almost forces them to eat to gain their, their strength back, and he takes a leadership role on the boat when no one else would. And so after this truly incredible display of courage... 
and boldness and leadership and sacrifice and wisdom and obedience to God. Here's the Apostle Paul, probably older than most of the men from the boat, the hero of the entire trip, the one who kept them all alive, and he's out gathering firewood for everyone else. Certainly there were younger, more able-bodied prisoners there. This was toward the end of Paul's life. And not to mention there were soldiers and crew members there as well. And I just think if that was me and I just accomplished everything that Paul had accomplished, if I had won the hearts and minds and respect of the other 275 men that I just saved from imminent and certain death, if that was me, I'd probably be sitting by that fire with my feet up making a s'more. Or two. But here's Paul out picking up firewood. And maybe that's not truly shocking given his track record. It most certainly is, though, a powerful statement about the character and integrity of this man of God who, after leading all of these other men through the greatest trial of their lives, is now quietly and humbly out in the trees picking up wood so the others can stay warm and comfortable. What a powerful picture! of an exceptionally gifted, intelligent, strong leader whose greatest and most visible attribute was a humble heart of Christ that came out in everything that he did. And just like Jesus who came to serve, not to be served, the great apostle Paul is out away from the fire collecting wood for others while they huddle up to its warmth. I think that's pretty amazing. And if we're not, if we're not really paying attention when we read uh, scriptures like this, we can miss seemingly insignificant details which are actually very significant they're very significant parts of Paul's life and journey and they'll speak to us if we let them because there's no part of our lives even the seemingly insignificant parts even the very difficult parts that escapes the plan and purpose that God has for us okay everything in your life has a purpose Everything in your life has a purpose. Obviously, uh, events happen in our lives and circumstances arise that are unplanned by us, unexpected, unforeseen. And sometimes when those moments come, our progress seems to stop and we can feel stranded when everything that we've been working toward comes to a screeching halt. And often those times, I think, appear to be anything but the hand of God working in our lives because there's a tendency to only view that which makes us feel good or that which we perceive as positive to be God working on our behalf, right? But Romans 8.28 doesn't say, and we know that for God, uh, for those who love God, the positive things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, right? No, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, that means everything. Right? The positive things, the negative things. The comfortable things, the uncomfortable things. The easy things, the hard things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's what Paul says. And if there was ever anyone outside of the Godhead who's qualified to make that statement, surely it's the Apostle Paul. I saw a sign somewhere the other day that said, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. I think that's pretty good. That's really a better way to view our experiences and situations in life. That perspective that recognizes God's hand working on our behalf 
even when life doesn't appear to be going our way. Okay, Paul uh, wrote to the church in Ephesus, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 God sees the whole picture that we cannot. And he's made a life, a lifetime worth of plans for you before you were even born. So there are no surprises for him. What it boils down to is that we have, we have to not only trust that he's always working on our behalf, but we should habituate ourselves, train ourselves to constantly be looking for the hand of God at work in our lives, particularly in those difficult times when we feel stranded in life. Because there's a lot more to it than simply sitting back in each season of life and saying, well, God is in control, so there's nothing for me to do. On the contrary, there's much for us to do within the sovereign plan that God has laid out for each one of us. And this is where uh, the doctrine of predestination uh, gets a bad rap. Um, Look, Scripture clearly talks about predestination in several places. And just like any Scripture that is interpreted differently uh, by lots of people... Um, We don't have time to unwrap all of that today, but I'll just say some believe that that means God actually chooses ahead of time who gets to be saved and who doesn't. Like God says, Bob, yeah, I'm going to let him go to heaven and Jim, nope, you're, you're out. Well, I'm just telling you, I don't believe that. Okay. I don't, that's not how I interpret predestination at all. Paul wrote to Timothy, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings who are all in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Why would he bother to tell us to pray for people if there's no hope for them? Right? But he goes on further to explain this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why would he desire something that he created that couldn't be? makes no sense. It seems clear to me that God's desire is for everyone to accept the truth, to accept Christ and to be saved. We're to pray to that end, even knowing that not everyone will accept the truth and be saved. At the same time, I do believe in predestination because it's in the Bible and we can't deny that. But as I read it in scripture, it says that God, knowing everything that was going to happen before time, as we know it even began, he created a plan For each of us that loves him and follows him. And that plan is for our good. It is a plan that we have also a lot of responsibility in. To see it through. Because he sees all of this from the beginning to the end all at once. He knows exactly what you need all along the way. To be able to accomplish that plan that he's created for your life. Okay, Predestination for me is the understanding That God has provided for every single detail of our lives ahead of time. So that we're guaranteed to have everything that we need to end up right where we're supposed to when it's all said and done. So that we can have all confidence in Him. That as we actively work toward the goals that He set out before us in His Word. That He will in turn do exactly what He's promised to do. Namely to work everything together for our good. And Paul can confidently make that statement because he knows that God has already provided everything that we need for it all to come together in the end. Can you see how much more incredibly loving that is toward us? As opposed to the view 
that God has uh, just created all of this. And then he took his hands off of it and he said, have at it. I hope you make it. Because it all depends on you. Let me tell you something. If it all depends on us, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. We're in a lot of trouble if how all this turns out depends on us getting it all right. Okay? Think about it this way. When you send your kid off to school for her first day away from home, you know that there are a lot of people and structures and timetables and directions and situations that have already been put into place to determine for her the ability to be able to get through that day. Right? And not only to make it through that day, but to see to it that she thrives. Right? It's been planned out for her ahead of time to go to class at a certain time, to get fed when it's time to eat, to learn certain things throughout her day, to interact with other students at prescribed times, and in the end to be delivered back to you, well-fed, well-educated, well-acclimated, well-socialized, well-exercised, well-prepared for the next day. That's predestination. Because we love her, we make certain that all of that is planned out ahead of time so that she's guaranteed in the end to have everything that she needs there to thrive. How loving would it be if there was no plan at her school? Teachers can come in or not if they want to. The cafeteria staff can choose whether or not they want to cook a meal for the kids. The teachers who do show up can decide whether or not they want to teach the kids anything. There's no schedule, there are no guidelines, there's no discipline. The bus drivers may or may not bring her home. They may decide to drop her off someplace else. How loving would it be to send your daughter to that school where nothing is planned out ahead of time and everyone can do whatever they want and whatever happens, happens? How loving would that be? No, we make certain that all of that is planned out ahead of time precisely because we love her. So it's all designed to work together for her good. That's predestination as I see it. But you know she has the ability in all of that, right, to make a lot of choices throughout her day. Choices that are going to significantly affect the quality of her experiences throughout the day, right? She can choose to submit to her teachers. She can choose to form good relationships, to eat the healthy part of her lunch, and to show up for class where she's supposed to, when she's supposed to, or not. She can choose to ignore her teachers, form the wrong relationships, only eat her dessert. She can skip class. And at the end of the day, she may still end up where she's supposed to, at home with you. But how well her day goes, and how far she excels, and how much potential is realized in her life along the way, has everything to do with her choices along the way. That's free will, as I see it. They work together. It's called compatibilism. Okay, ultimately, he's in control. But he didn't simply create us to be these passive spectators, which the extreme version of predestination would say, well, God's just got it all planned out. It doesn't matter what we do. No, we're, we're designed to be active participants in this great plan of his. And if we're going to do what we're supposed to do, we have to be attentive to what he's telling us and what he's teaching us and what he's doing in our lives in the good times and in the difficult times, knowing that in the end, all of this that he has planned out ahead of time is working together for our good because he loves us, right? 
to the Christians at Ephesus. Again, Paul wrote, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. Okay, everything in your life has a purpose. God has a plan, and it is a good plan, where even the hard parts are working together, ultimately for your good. And so when life gets uncomfortable and your progress seems to have stopped and you feel like you're stranded on a remote island somewhere for no apparent reason, pay attention. Even in those difficult times, perhaps mostly in those difficult times, because God is never idle. He's always working on your behalf and you'll find that he has a purpose for you even in the most trying periods of your life, okay? There's always a purpose. Paul's stranded on this island. He gets bitten by a snake which seems at first to really be a bit random, and so the natives are waiting for him to die. Verse 4 says, They said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. And just as a side note, when they refer to justice, they're not uh, talking about some abstract idea of, of destiny, like today when we think when someone gets what they have coming to them and we say justice was served. That's not what they were talking about. The, the native Maltese people... Uh, were either referring to the Greek goddess D.K., who was a mythological goddess of justice, that's what her name means, or some scholars say they were referencing the Greek god Nemesis, who was a mythological god of vengeance. But if you read the actual Greek text, the word justice in verse 4 is the Greek name D.K., and you'll notice it's capitalized. She was the goddess of justice. So there's some disagreement there among scholars. But either way, the point is, These islanders who worshipped false gods were waiting for one of their gods to strike Paul dead because he was a prisoner and they assumed he was guilty of murder and therefore their god or goddess would punish him accordingly through this snake bite. And so given this disposition toward Greek mythology, the last person they would have ever listened to about faith and religion would have been one of these prisoners, particularly one that's now being judged, right? Subject to their justice. But even as random as Paul's snake bite seems then at first glance, if we pay attention, we begin to see a great purpose in it from God, all right? God uses the snake bite to prove to these pagan natives that Paul was more than your average prisoner, deserving death. Rather, he was someone probably worth listening to. The snake bite and, and Paul's lack of reaction to it opens the doors for Paul to be able to minister in other ways to the people of Malta that he wouldn't otherwise have been able to. Because now, rather than waiting for him to die, they begin to look to him for help. And ultimately, as we'll see, they allow him to minister to them, okay? Let's keep reading in this story from verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Okay, so we see Paul here being invited to visit the chief of the island which probably never would have happened had he become very ill from the snake bite. It definitely wouldn't have happened if he'd died from the snake bite. So God uses a miracle to open the door to the chief of the island for Paul, who's attained God status with these people, which of course is incorrect. 
for them to think about Paul that way, but God uses even that to completely transform these people's lives, as we'll see. And there was a common and very serious malady uh, called Malta fever. It was prevalent on the island due to a bacteria that was in the milk of the local goat herds there. And so a lot of the islanders would become very ill from drinking the goat's milk. And so the chief's father had Malta fever. Verse 8 says that Paul put his hands on the man and healed him. Of course, verse 9 says that because of that, the rest of the people on the island came and were cured. And a careful examination of the original text here in the Greek reveals a significant point. In verse 8, when Paul's used to heal the chief's father, the word uh, healed there in the Greek is the word eomai, which suggests that this was a supernatural and instantaneous healing. Whereas in verse 9, where all the people were coming and being cured, that is the Greek word therapuo. It's where we get our word therapy from today in English, which refers to medical treatment. And so although we don't know for certain uh, how this was all taking place, there's a very strong argument to be made, and one that many scholars make, that because Luke was writing this story, and because Luke was a medical doctor by trade, and because of the very specific language that he uses, the different words here, it's quite possible, and some say likely, that Luke and Paul essentially set up a medical clinic to treat the sick on the island while they were there. Why? Why not just heal them instantly like he did the father of Publius, right? Now, we can't say with 100% certainty, but the language certainly seems to suggest that. And what is, what is without question here which is the real point to be made, is the fact that Paul was using his time while he was stranded on this island, which is beginning, by the way, to look less and less like an unfortunate event in Paul's life and more and more like a divine appointment that was all planned out by God ahead of time. Paul's using every moment that he has for a very specific purpose. He's being used by God to minister physical healing to these people. And if they've set up a medical clinic, rather than just touching everyone and healing them instantly, think of the time that Paul had with these local islanders to minister spiritually to them as well, which you know that Paul did, given his character and what we know of him now. You see, it doesn't matter to Paul whether he's standing in front of a king, a high priest, an emperor, a chief, or a simple native child living on an island far from the pomp and prestige of city life. Paul finds purpose in everything that he does, no matter where he is or who he's with or what his circumstances are. And the common denominator in Paul's purpose everywhere that he went was found in his service, certainly to God, but to others also, okay? Your purpose will always be found in serving someone else. Your purpose will always be found in serving someone else. Throughout our lives, obviously God will have many different tasks for us, many different jobs for us to do, a calling that will lead us to different people at different places at different times. But in every case, when we're truly fulfilling our purpose, we're in one way or another serving someone else. And this is why our enemy tries so hard to distract us in those times in our lives when we feel stranded. Because when we feel stranded, we feel vulnerable. And when we feel vulnerable, our natural tendency is to think about ourselves first. Right? We go into self-preservation mode. And if the enemy of our souls can get us to think about ourselves more than we think about others, then we're no longer fulfilling our God-given purpose. 
Okay, because God's purpose for us is never self-serving to the exclusion of others. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Matthew 20, 26 through 28. This is why the prosperity gospel doesn't work. Because it's all self-focused. And that is not the heart of Christ. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2, 3. Even in Paul's defense, when he was beaten and falsely accused and dragged before the Sanhedrin, he shared the gospel in his testimony rather than beg for mercy for himself. You know, if there was ever a time when everyone would have totally understood Paul focusing on himself just once to preserve his own life, those trials that he went through would have been it. Yet he chose instead to focus on others, even even those who hated him. Because he knew that his purpose was found in service to them for the sake of the gospel. He always found purpose in serving others. Whether it was sharing the gospel or sharing medicine or sharing his food or sharing his shelter. Paul lived for Christ by serving other people for the sake of Christ. He never made it about himself. It was always about Jesus Christ and that was always expressed in how he served other people. And it's, it's easy to wonder, why Malta, right? I mean, uh, Paul is a key player in God's story throughout history. He's one of the most effective and powerful Christians in history. It seems right to me that Paul is thrust in front of kings and chiefs and emperors and rulers. He's the right man for that job, if there ever was one. And yet, as soon as he's shipwrecked, Stranded on an island in the middle of the sea in this out-of-the-way place that seems so insignificant compared to places like Jerusalem and Rome. Not once do we see Paul ever kicking back and taking some personal time to relax before his scheduled arrival in Rome. Or groping around in self-pity, wondering why he's stuck on this nowhere island when there are so many much more seemingly important things to be done. Paul simply keeps doing what he's always done. He finds a way to serve other people for the sake of Jesus Christ because he knows that his purpose and his service to others cannot be separated. Those two go hand in hand. And so, no matter where you are in life, no matter what your circumstances are, there's a purpose that God has for you in being there, wherever there is. And you can rest assured that that purpose is somehow wrapped up in serving someone else for the sake of Christ. But you won't be able to recognize those opportunities when they're presented to you if you're focused on yourself in those difficult times when you feel stranded or stalled out. And so I can tell you that the fastest way to discover your purpose in any situation that you find yourself in is to find a way to serve someone else right where you are in that situation. Most likely God will keep you there for some period of time and then he'll usually move you on to whatever is next. But the key is to stop looking at those stranded on an island times in our lives as obstacles to our progress and start looking at them as opportunities to find new purpose in our lives because that is what God intends for them to be. Of all the places that Paul visited in his life, the profound effect that he had on the people of Malta 
may be one of the greatest triumphs of his entire life. Did you know that today, 98% of the citizens of Malta today consider themselves born-again Christians? There's one Christian church on Malta for every 1,000 residents. And so incredibly strong is the Christian faith there now, directly because of Paul's time being stranded. If you look at the statistics on how many missionaries are sent out around the world per capita, the percentage of missionaries sent out based on each nation's population within their own churches, the churches on Malta send out the third most missionaries in the entire world. That is staggering considering the size of that tiny island compared to the rest of the Christian nations in the world. Not to mention that the beach that Paul was stranded on is known as St. Paul's Bay. Isn't that cool? What a legacy. What an amazing purpose there was to Paul's time being stranded, stuck on that island. And I know that some of you may be feeling stranded today. Maybe your life has taken a turn or, or two or three that you weren't expecting. And you're in a place that feels a bit desolate. Maybe you're feeling stuck. Maybe it feels like your progress has been stopped and you're not sure what to do now. I want you to know that every single situation and every circumstance in your life, even the really difficult ones, has a purpose. A God purpose that is ultimately intended for your good. And although we cannot always see that in the moment and, and sometimes not even, uh, not even for a long time, there's still a purpose and God knows what it is. And in his timing, he will reveal that purpose to you. So don't ever feel that your purpose is lost or that there's no meaning to your situation because there is a purpose for every single day in every single situation in your life. And the way that God will reveal that purpose to you is through your service to other people. And, and believe me, I know that sometimes the very hardest thing to think about when you feel stranded and stalled out in life is to do something for someone else. I know. All we want to do sometimes is retreat from everyone else into ourselves and go into survival mode, but we can't. Not if we want to thrive in the purpose that God has for us. And there is a purpose. And, and what you will often find when you begin serving others in those island places in your life is that an even greater purpose is revealed to you that you would have otherwise never been exposed to. I was in Alaska, thriving. Greatest moment of my life. Finally into full-time ministry. Everything was going like I better than I could have ever imagined. Wanted to be a worship pastor all my life. For the first time, I'm a full-time worship pastor of ministry. It's all I have to think about all week and do. is amazing. And then the other five pastors on staff left. You want to talk about being stuck, stranded on an island, or in my case, in the Arctic? Feeling like, oh man, is there a future? And even after everybody else walked out and we stayed and said, yes, I'll pastor this church. And we began to serve hundreds of people. Didn't know what I was doing. Never pastored a church before. God revealed an incredible purpose. 
It's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing in my life. And it's why we're here today pastoring this church. We all get snake bitten sometimes out of nowhere and it hurts. But that's when we have to shake it off and get busy serving God by serving others. And that's when you will realize God's hand moving in your circumstance and working on your behalf when you turn your focus away from your problems and onto your purpose. Let's pray.